Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we've been looking at the life of Esther, and I hope you've enjoyed this study as much as I have. It's been a real treat to go through this together. Uh, let us kind of bring everybody up to speed on where we've been so far. We've talked about this beautiful, young, really unknown Jewish girl who was orphaned as a young child, raised by her relatives, and really hidden from a life of any great significance. There's nothing about her sh that should make her the, the main character in this story. She has a life that more or less is kind of hidden behind the scenes. But through a chance encounter created by a sinful decree, Esther caught someone's eye. You'll remember the king sent out his uh, servants to go and, and, and gather all the beautiful young virgins of the province. We know from what Scripture tells us that Esther was beautiful in form and in face. That's the way God made her. But it was that striking appearance that captured the attention of one of the king's servants. And before she knew it, she was entered into a beauty contest that she never signed up for. Here was this unknown little Jewish girl living behind the scenes, now forced front and center gaining the limelight of the stage. Out of a hundred girls, at least, the, Esther was the one that captured the king's attention. And we talked about that, the fact that this was a sinful decree. It was an immoral process, but even through all of that, God in His divine providence worked all things to a good end. In the blink of an eye, this unknown Jewish girl was made queen of the largest empire in the world. Now, as amazing as that story is, there's another story that kind of works right alongside of it. In this story, we have two men whose ancestors have long been enemies. This is like the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? They were born and raised to hate each other. The first was Mordecai. He was actually Esther's cousin and the man who raised Esther to be one of his own daughters. He was the descendant of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, from the nation of Israel. Then you have a man by the name of Haman. He was a, a very wealthy man, very likely using that wealth to gain prominence to eventually become the second most powerful man in this kingdom. He was a descendant of Agag from the Amalekites, enemies of the Jews. Now, Mordecai, we learn, was faithful in, in serving the king, even to the point that he uh, reported a plot that was intended to assassinate the king. So essentially, he saved the king's life. He was humble before the king, devoted to serve him, but unwilling to bow before Haman. Haman, on the other hand, used the king. He abused his power and his influence to, to get his way, eventually wanting to, to carry out vengeance on Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. He convinced the king to, to carry out a decree to kill all the Jews, to annihilate them. And the reason that he convinced him to do so is because he told the king that these Jews were criminals. They, they were rebels in his kingdom and would only cause it to fall. But he had hidden the fact that one of those criminals was actually the man, Mordecai, who saved the king's life. 
another one of those criminals was his queen, Queen Esther. These two stories run parallel to each other and really have no reason to intersect at all until that defining moment when Esther crossed the line. She comes out of the shadows, risking her life to stand with and for her people, the Jews. She commands Mordecai, if you remember, and and all the Jews to come together to restore and renew that tradition of faith, to to fast and to, to pray as it was custom for all believing Jews in their history. You see, she was aligning herself with with God's people and God's law. And she was prepared to break with the tradition of that unyielding, very immoral Persian empire. Meanwhile, Haman continues to try to push his way to the front. You'll recall that he was a man whose identity was wrapped up in the opinion of other people. And Mordecai was a man who didn't show him the respect that he was convinced he deserved. So he builds a gallows, 75 feet tall, seven stories tall, in which to crucify Mordecai for all the world to see and demonstrate his power and prestige in this kingdom. This is a game to Haman. and He's maneuvering and taking out chess pieces. These people that he considers to be pawns, people like Mordecai, but he doesn't realize that the the queen is maneuvering as well. And before he understands what has happened, all of a sudden, she's about to call the game. Checkmate. The tables have turned. And where we left off last, Haman is sweating bullets. (laughs) Because in a very strange, divine twist of fate, his plans backfired. The man that he was intending to murder turns out to be the man that he now publicly proclaims to be a hero by the instruction given to him by the king. He goes home and tells his family, and they say basically, look, you're on your own from here. This is not going to turn out well. And then before we know it, there's that knock at the door. The eunuchs have arrived to take him to that banquet that the queen has prepared that he thinks is in his honor. But his head is spinning. His thoughts are winding up tight inside of his head because he's not sure what's going on. This uh, finest hour has turned into a royal nightmare. And it's about to get a whole lot worse. See, Haman is falling into the trap of his own deception. And this is where I think we really need to pay attention. Because if we're not careful, the very same thing can be true for us. Lying and deception is a dangerous trap that always catches its victim by surprise. The surprise is based on the fact that the victim is the one who set the trap in the first place. But deception will make you think that you're in control. That you've got everyone else fooled. But truth will find a way. And in the end, Deception is a game of fools, and you never win. You always lose. And so we need to be very prayerful about that as we go to the Word this morning. Let's pray together. 
God, as we come to you, we do ask that you give us eyes to see through the events of an amazing story, an incredible young girl hidden in the shadows of anonymity, thrust to center stage, made queen of the largest empire in the world for just a moment like this. We see the evil intentions of what seems to be a powerful man with limitless control. The king has given him complete authority to do whatever he wants, and what he wants is to annihilate your people. There seems no possible way for this to turn out good. And yet, through it all, in your divine providence, you work all things to a good and perfect end according to your plan in the world. As we listen to this story, help us see our own lives within that story. Help us be confronted with the deception that we fall prey to at times. Help us to recognize your hand of protection in the midst of very difficult situations. Help us to see your love and grace. Your mercies that are new every morning. Father, that's our prayer as we come to you and spend time in your word this morning. Amen. If you would, turn to Esther. We're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 6 just to pick up where we left off last and kind of capture that scene. Esther chapter 16, I mean chapter 6, verse 14. It says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. The first thing I want you to notice is that absolutely nothing happens on the first day of this banquet. Did you get that? Everything that takes place begins to happen on the second day. And with that, I want you to consider the patience of Esther. It was two days ago now that she made that homemade dinner, right, for Haman and the king and invited them into her presence where she might serve that meal. And twice during that meal, the king asked her what her petition was and then follows like he does here saying, I will give you whatever you want. But each time, instead of asking the king to do something for her, she asked permission to do something for the king. Now we're at the banquet. Day one has arrived, and instead of initiating her request, she waits for the king to do that himself. And so a third time, he initiates his effort towards her and says, Esther, you can have whatever you want. What is your request? Now, you have to know, that his assumption at this point is that Esther wants something for herself. That would be the logical assumption in this situation. Kind of like if you're the boss of an organization and all of a sudden one of your employees starts uh, really buttering up to you and they're coming in early, they're, they're staying late, they're bringing you goodies and then they want to have that private meeting. <laughs> you know what's coming, right? They want a promotion, they want to raise something for themselves. The assumption would be that's what Esther's up to. If you think about it, I believe that's exactly what Mort, or, um, Haman has done to get in the position that he's in now. 
I think he's probably maneuvered, manipulated, and bribed his way to the top. It's really the way of that ancient world, and I don't know that our world's all that different. The question is, is Esther all that different? And what we're learning is that she is. She's humble and submissive, not presumptuous and arrogant. She's been very patient. And one of the reasons is, is that she knows that she will be walking through a minefield when she makes her request. So she waits for the right time. Somehow, she will have to condemn Haman's decree without incriminating the king. And that won't be easy because the two are tied so closely together. This is like dismantling a time bomb, one delicate wire at a time. And she's down to the last two wires. The problem is, she doesn't know which one to cut. And if she were to cut the wrong wire, literally millions of people would die because of that mistake. And so Esther tiptoes into the conversation. Look at what she says in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. Now that seems like a reasonable request, a little bit confusing, but she's just saying, would you protect me and would you protect my people? I'm sure the king hears this and says, okay, and maybe even looks over at Haman going, do you know what she's talking about? And I think by this time, Haman is choking on a piece of meat. I mean, I think it's stuck in his tightly contricted throat thinking, oh my gosh. Because here's what he didn't realize. He didn't know Esther was a Jew. And so look at what she does next. Verse 4. For we have been sold. I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we've only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be comm commiserate with the annoyance to the king. What a skillful approach to this issue. Esther speaks to the problem without ever incriminating the king. He tells her that, that she and her people have been sold. They've been purchased for destruction. She doesn't mention any names, which only serves to, to build the tension inside of the king's mind. You know he's thinking inside of his head, who would do something like this? Right under my nose, threatened to destroy the queen and all of her people. This is an enemy to the throne. Who would possibly do something like this? And then as if to throw gas on the fire, Esther says, look, if we were only to be sold as slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you. But since my life as your queen is at stake, I thought you might want to know. Brilliant, isn't it? Brilliant move. Think about Haman at this point. He has to be as white as a ghost. Again, not realizing that Esther was a Jew. He has unknowingly manipulated the king 
to give him permission to kill the queen. This is a nightmare for Haman. And it's going from bad to worse as he realizes how he's being caught in his own trap of deception. Look at verse 5. The king Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? And who would presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen, and the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. You see what's happening here? The king can't stand it anymore. The, the queen has built up such anticipation. He wants names, and he wants them now. Who would do such a thing? Esther matches his emotion. Notice how she draws it out. She says, this hateful, this evil, this enemy to the king is the man sitting right next to you, Haman. <laughs> and with that announcement, he pushes himself from the table, runs to the garden, mind racing about what he's going to do to deal with this issue. Will he throw Haman in prison for life? Will he beat him for his crime? Meanwhile, Haman falls at Esther's feet to beg for his life. And let's understand why this is a big problem. In this ancient culture, in order to protect the queen, no one was allowed to approach the queen without the king's presence. And even when he was there, they could not get within seven feet of her. And the reason was because anything closer than that would be perceived as a direct threat to her life. And so when King Xerxes stood up and walked out of the room, Haman should have done the same thing. But instead, he stays and falls at her feet. And this would prove to be a deadly mistake. Because look at what happens when Xerxes enters the room. Verse 8. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the room where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out from the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, the, one of the eunuchs who was there before the king, said, Behold, indeed the gallows standing at Haman's house... 50 cubits high, was Ham, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. When the king walks into the room and sees that threatening move that Haman had made towards his queen, assaulting her essentially in his own house that was all he could take the time bomb exploded they put a sheet over his face this is like putting someone in handcuffs but even worse because to show his face was even a disgrace to the king and then the attendant tells the king that this is the man who was intending to crucify the one who had saved his life mordecai not only was Haman a threat to the queen, 
but he was going to kill the man who had saved the king's life. This is not a friend. He has now proven to be a traitor of the worst kind, posing to be a friend. The decision was quick. The judgment was final. And Haman was impaled on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. The history of deception ultimately led to his destruction. He was caught in the very same trap he had set for someone else. Look at how our story continues in verse 8. On that day, King Xerxes gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You see, since Haman had been killed as a, as a traitor, essentially, everything that belonged to him now belonged to the king. And in a gesture to his queen, he hands it all over to her. And given what we know about Haman's obvious wealth, this was really no small gesture, was it? This was a big deal. It was also at this time that we learn that Esther informs the king of her relationship with Mordecai. This only endears his heart to Mordecai even more, because not only was this the man who once saved his life, but it was also the man who raised, who is now, the woman who is now his queen, Queen Esther. So in an act of highest honor, he hands over the royal credit card. Actually, it was his signet ring, but it was the exact same thing. It gave him permission and authority to do whatever he wanted in the name of the king. Isn't it interesting how by no effort of his own, Mordecai now holds Haman's same position with his same authority, even given responsibility over Haman's entire estate. It's an interesting twist of fate, isn't it? But just when we think the drama is coming to a close, not yet. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil schemes of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if, you have found, if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Xerxes said to the Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he has stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, and seal it with a king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all Mordecai commanded, 
to all the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes and provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, to every people according to their language, as well as to those Jews according to their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Xerxes, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adair, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples, to all the Jews should be ready for their day of vengeance, to avenge themselves as on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out, riding on royal steeds and the decree was given out in Susa, the capital. It's interesting that the king told Esther that she could have whatever she wanted. But apparently, there was an exception. You you can have whatever you want as long as it doesn't reverse, or as long as it doesn't contradict with any decree I've previously made. Now, if you think about it, it really doesn't make sense. The king is the king of the largest empire in the world. He can do whatever he wants. Of course, he could cancel that decree. But don't forget, this is a sinful, immoral man. He was not about to admit that he had made a mistake by writing the first decree. So instead, he just told Mordecai and advised him to to write a second decree decree that essentially counters the first one. That way the Jews are able to defend themselves, but the king doesn't have any mud on his face. But it makes no sense at all. Because he has just authorized civil war in his own country. But when you are a sinful, prideful person, you do foolish things like this. And that's what the king has done. Look at how it finishes up in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there were, was light and gladness and joy and honor. And each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. You'll notice that everything described in these few verses is the exact opposite of just previous scenes. Instead of being dressed in sackcloth and ashes, where we saw Mordecai last time he was in the city square, now he's wearing royal robes and a royal crown. Instead of weeping and mourning in what had taken place in that first decree, now there was a celebration. There was gladness and joy for the second decree, giving them a chance to defend themselves. And then there's that interesting statement there at the end of 
verse 17 that talks about how many of the people of the land became Jews. Isn't that curious? What, what's happening there? Now, I don't know for sure, but there's definitely something unusual taking place. Maybe the, some of the Gentiles who lived in that kingdom wanted to become Jews in support of the people having just been given favor by the king of the empire. It's kind of like, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Maybe that's what's been going on. Or maybe some of the people are beginning to realize the, the favor that God is having among his people. You know that idea that sometimes it's too coincidental to be a coincidence? And maybe that's the reason. Or maybe it's a combination of both those, including the possibility that some of these Jews, hidden in their faith up to this point, see the bold faith of Esther and are willing to stand up and proclaim what they believe as well. We don't know for sure, but here's what we do know. What was this hidden, no-name religion of a Jewish people who nobody cared about was all of a sudden the most important thing happening in the biggest, most powerful kingdom in the world. Just like Esther, brought from the shadows into the very center stage to put God's work on display. As we think about what took place this morning in our passage, I want us to think back to this dangerous trap of deception. Because like I mentioned at the beginning, we need to understand that we are equally um, as, it's equally as possible for us to fall into a similar trap. If we make those small compromises. You see, we start out with little things. Maybe we give the appearance of being honest, <laughs> But we know we're not telling the whole story. We're just telling enough that they'll believe us. And we're hiding things that would incriminate us. Maybe there are compromises that we're hiding because we're confident no one will ever see. But let's be clear. That's the trap of deception. It's the idea that no one will ever notice. I'm in complete control. But in order to keep up the charade, you've got to tell more lies. You've got to hide more things. And before it, you don't control your deception. Your deception has grown so big, it now controls you. But let's just say for the moment, just for the sake of discussion, that you have done a good job. You're, you're masterful and how you present things and hide things, and no one else knows. But let me ask you this. Have you keeping God in the dark? Is there anything in your life hidden from His sight? Does that matter to you? You see, deception is a trap. And the only person you're really fooling is yourself. In fact, you can actually repeat a lie so many times that even you believe it's true. Now you're caught in your own trap, just like Haman. Deception is a game of fools, and it's a game that no one ever wins. It will destroy you, and it will destroy the people around you. I want you to look at a passage of Scripture with me as we finish up that kind of speaks to this. Turn to 1 John. 
chapter 1. Samantha and I had a great conversation this week talking about these verses. So, Samantha, you want to come up here and teach the, the rest of this? You'll pass, okay. 1 John is right before the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 1, let's start in verse 5. And I want you to notice that there's a comparison and contrast going on here as John is writing this letter. And listen to what he says in the beginning. In verse 5 he says, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You cannot keep God in the dark because in him there is no darkness at all. So if we say that we are walking with God and yet the darkness of deception rules our life, then we lie. And and the worst lie of ever is the lie that you start to believe yourself when you lie enough that even you believe it's true. You see, when that happens... God is not in control of your life. Deception is. Now, you can say the right things. You can pose the right picture. But if there are things that are hidden in your heart, you cannot say that you walk with God if you live in the darkness of deception. The two don't coexist. Look at how he continues in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, hiding our sin prevents us from walking in fellowship with God. Now, we can say that we have no sin. We can convince ourselves that it's not that big of a deal. We can avoid the conviction of God's word. We can avoid the accountability of God's people in Christian relationships. We can think that we are in complete control. Okay, so you got it. That's funny. But the point here is that we can live a lie. And we can live that lie thinking that we are in complete control. But listen to me clearly, okay? Don't be distracted. Focus on me. When when deception rules your life, you don't control it. It controls you. See, our relationship with God only exists through a heart of repentance. We cannot walk with Christ and choose to hide our sin. A life of faith depends on a humble heart of surrender. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous himself is the atonement for our sins and not for ours only but for those of the whole world the key here is to understand that christians are people of confession we're not marked by our perfection 
and the absence of sin, we lie if we think that's the case. Instead, we are marked by our confession and our unwillingness to hide our sin. We walk in the grace of God's forgiveness. We seek to grow in Christ by submitting to the work of His Spirit and the light that exposes the sin in our hearts. But the grace that we have when we come before Him and understand that forgiveness comes through faith in Christ alone. So if you're here this morning and you're playing the game of deception, let me urge you to look at the life of Haman. Because that's the road you're on. And that life always ends with a destructive end. Both you and those around you. Maybe it's a small compromise. But no one compromise is ever satisfied with standing alone. They love company. They need company to survive. And pretty soon, your deception takes on a life of its own. And you start believing things that you once knew were not true. You get caught in the trap that you set, just like Haman. You see, the greatest danger of all is when that deception that you now start to believe starts to change your identity so that you become someone that God never intended you to be in the first place. But that's the work of the enemy. That's exactly what he wants. He wants you to become something other than what God has made possible for you. He wants you to, to have destruction and God wants you to have life. He wants you to find a failure and, and find places where you doubt your own worth and well-being. And God wants you to be in a place where you see yourself as the child of God that he created you to be. One of his own. And so I want you to understand the heart behind what I believe God wants us to see in these passages. Is that there's a place that we come to find grace and forgiveness in a time of need. And you don't have to hide anything. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the first to know that you are not perfect. But you know the one who is. And he has promised forgiveness and grace. And if you come before him with that heart of repentance and humility and surrender, he restores what the enemy has broken. And allows you to become the person he ultimately created you to be. And there is no greater satisfaction and hope and truth that exists in your life other than that. So I want to encourage you to take some time this morning to take a bold step of faith. Isn't that what Esther did? Isn't that the point of this story? She's the one that stood up and said, not anymore. Today will be different. I will stand up for what I believe to be true. She had a choice to live in deception. And she probably could have carried it out successfully. No one would have ever thought that the queen was actually a Jew. But she chose not to do that. She chose to step into the light and stand for what she knew was right and true to align her heart with the heart of God and to put her trust in him. And she did it by beginning with prayer. A heart of humble surrender. So this morning, I want you to pray. I'm going to give you some time to just go before the Lord. And like I said last week, guys, please understand my 
honesty in this. When you walk out the door, the enemy has a way of, of erasing everything that was so important to you right here. And I'm telling you, don't let him take that ground. You take it right now. You drive a stake in the ground and say, this morning, this is the commitment that I'm making so that when you walk out that door, you walk out with a commitment. A commitment to do something different. And don't hide it. Just as dangerous as hiding sin is hiding commitments because they don't live unless you tell other people and ask them to join you in that promise to be faithful. So be bold. Take a step of faith. And start it this morning. Let's just take some time to pray. Father, we confess that we are all guilty at times of pretending to be somebody that we're not in an effort to gain the acceptance of those around us. We're all guilty of telling half-truths. What we said is true. We're just withholding some of the information that might incriminate us. We're guilty of that. Father, we're all guilty of trying to present ourselves in a way that others will accept us, even if it doesn't include all the information. So really, in the end, we're all guilty. That's the point. And so we all need to come before you with a heart of surrender to you, the one who understands that guilt to the point that you sent your son to die for that guilt in order to set us free from that guilt. So I pray that, there, that, that those who took the, the time and the sincerity of heart to come before you with a commitment to expose deception, to confess their sin, that they would be faithful to follow that through, that they would speak that to others, that they will invite Christian people into their lives who will walk with them and for them, standing together for the faith that you have called us to as your people. May we be bold like Esther was. And may we learn from Haman's example and see that deception is a game of fools. It always has a destructive end. And we cannot say that we have fellowship with you and yet continue the game of deception. But you promise if we come into the light, as you are in the light, that you forgive our sins by the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that there are those who leave this place this morning with the commitment to walk faithfully in that commitment to trust in you. Thank you for our time this morning and this incredible story of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.